Welcome to the Athens Collective. Hello, one and all, and welcome to the Athens Collective. Um, I hope your weeks are all going well. Um, spring break is coming up, um, and I hope that you all are as excited to get a break from school as I am. <laughs> um, I know that the school can be challenging, and I know that things can be a little difficult, so I hope you all are doing well, and I hope you don't have too much schoolwork to do over break. Make sure that you all are taking care of yourselves and doing things that you enjoy this break, even if you have school schoolwork that needs to be finished, um, because both of those things are important, and I would have to say that you are probably, you know, definitely more important than your schoolwork, so take care of yourself, and everything will be fine in the long run. Anyways, um, last week I was telling you guys about this wonderful book that I had started reading called Moral Men. Um, by Derek Delgadio. Um, when I had brought that book up, I was maybe only two chapters, two chapters into the book at that point. Um, since then, I had finished the book within maybe two days, <laughs> um, and it has officially become one of my favorite books. Um, so today I thought I would read to you the first chapter of this wonderfully, but wonderful book, um, so you guys can witness its amazingness <laughs> alongside me. Um, so go ahead and Grab your warm drinks, grab your blankets, grab a warm place to sit, if you can. I don't know if that's a thing you can do, um, but get cozy and let's get into it. Delgadio, Chapter 1. The Opposite of Light. It was 3 a.m. Seated directly across from me was a brutish Armenian with a bad habit of scratching the stubble on the side of his head whenever he held a decent hand. The disgruntled look on his face had everything to do with the puny stack of poker chips in front of him. The rest of his chips, along with the chips of six other opponents who had been vanquished, 
were piled high in front of the only other player remaining at the table. An older man with silver hair and skin so red it looked hot to the touch. He was seated to my left and puffing on his third cigar of the evening. This is the man who, arran who had arranged the game. He was the man who hired me to deal. The game was held in a back room on the ground floor of a Beverly Hills mansion. Every week, poker players from all walks of life flocked to that house looking for serious action. The initial buy-in was $10,000, but guests were welcome to lose as much as they'd like. I call it a game, but that's not really accurate. Games involve luck and skill. You can win a game because the end is unwritten. But at the poker table, my, at my table, the outcome was decided before anyone else sat down. It was my job to decide it. There are various words to describe my role. Cheater is a broad but appropriate term. Card mechanic, or simply mechanic, would apply. Card sharp and card shark are interchangeable, both suitable. However, the precise, most accurate title is bust-out dealer. I was a card mechanic secretly hired by the house to pose as a professional dealer and cheat its customers. I made sure they went bust. On this particular occasion, I was having trouble finishing what we had started several hours earlier. My boss, who was going to be the big winner that night, was annoyed that I was taking so long to collect. What he didn't know, what I didn't have a chance to communicate to him, was why it was taking so long. The Armenian wouldn't stop staring at my hands. Plenty of guys had stared at my hands before. That's just part of the hell of being a card cheat. You can never know why someone is watching you intently, or what they're seeing. Is he onto me? Or is he just lost in thought? What did he see? What does he know? Why won't he look away? I learned to suppress such unhelpful voices in my head. Anytime someone studied me as I shuffled or dealt, and I'd felt this fear start to creep in, I'd remind myself what my boss told me. These people are addicts, and you're their dealer. If they're staring at your hands, it's not because they think you're che cheating, it's because they're waiting for their next fix. That private affirmation wasn't working, as the Armenian stared at my hands. It felt too risky to move under fire, so I dealt another hand on the square, thinking that would put him at ease, but it didn't help. He just kept staring, and I grew increasingly uncomfortable. Unfortunately, I wasn't hired to play it safe. While the Armenian man was staring at my hands, my boss was giving me the universal look of hurry the fuck up and cheat already. I understood his frustration. The night was getting away from us. I was tired. I couldn't tell if my eyes were dry from the smoke in the air or because I hadn't blinked since the sun had gone down. Not to mention, my hands were so cold it hurt to shuffle cards. It wasn't the temperature in the room that was the problem, nor was it the events of this particular night. My hands were always freezing in that house. It had affected my ability to focus, so I looked into it and discovered. Cold hands are the result 
of the body's fight or flight response. When the mind perceives a threat, adrenaline is released, increasing the heart rate and shuttling the blood to the vital areas of the body. One of the first places that loses blood is the hand. As the blood leaves, it takes its warmth with it. Cold hands were my body's way of telling me to flee. I could have walked away from the table, claimed I needed a break or that I wasn't feeling well, but I had too much to prove. I needed to end it. Not for the money, though it was my only mean of income. Not to please my boss, a man who had recently taken me under his wing. I had to know if I was worth a damn. So I ignored the Armenian's game, gaze and focused on my task. I took a deep breath, and simulating the actions of shuffling and cutting the cards, I secretly arranged a good hand for the Armenian and a slightly better hand for my boss. While the Armenian said nothing and continued to stare, I exhaled with the final false cut, then sailed two cards to each of the players. The Armenian slowly, almost skeptically, shifted his focus from my hands to peek at the cards he was just dealt. I didn't know I was in the clear until I saw him reach up and scratch the stubble on the side of his head. My boss knew it was over, but he enjoyed toying with people, similar to the way a cat plays with its prey before killing it. The two men bet cautiously through the flop and the turn. The river came, and the Armenian said, All in, not even bothering to shove his small stack of chips toward the center. After some overdramatic hemming and hawing, my boss said, Call. Both men turned their cards over. The Armenian had two pair, queens and tens. My boss smiled with the cigar between his teeth and showed his three jacks. I pulled the stack of chips away from the Armenian and scooted them toward the winner, who immediately began gleefully sorting his winnings. The Armenian sat there, expressionless and silent. Normally, when players take a beating like that, they bitch and moan, or make a joke to ease the pain, or they just get up and leave. But the Armenian simply sat there, staring blankly at the spot on the table where his money used to be. I ignored the awkwardness, and began gathering up the cards, preparing to leave the table. But I stopped moving completely when the Armenian calmly reached behind his back and produced a snub-nosed revolver. He rested the gun on the table with his hand wrapped firmly around the handle, and the barrel pointed in my direction. The room fell deadly quiet. Even the ceiling fan, which normally hummed rhythm- rhythmically, was spinning silently. If my life flashed before my eyes, it happened so quickly I didn't notice. The Armenian looked up at me, then looked over at my boss. Then he said, How much can I get for this? We said nothing as she shoved the gun to the center and said, Someone, give me 500 for it. The oxygen slowly poured back into the room as the brute continued to negotiate against himself, saying, Give me 400, come on, it's worth twice that. Realizing he was talking to me, I stammered, I'm, I'm not authorized to do that, sir. Then I looked at my boss, who was still stunned by the event. After a moment, he too snapped back into reality and did the only thing he could do. He bought the pistol. The Armenian sold the gun over to my boss in exchange for poker chips. 
We took it all back at the very next hand. I was 25 years old when I worked at a, as a bust-out dealer. It was a brief chapter, chapter in my life, less than six months, but it was the education of a lifetime. More importantly, I saw something extraordinary in that house. It wasn't a vision, per se, although it did offer me insight into my past, present, and future, and I wouldn't describe it as an out-of-body experience. But I am closer to understanding what others mean when they say that. The best way to briefly describe the experience itself is to say I lost sight of reality just enough to glimpse the truth. After I walked away from that life, I never spoke of the incident, and I rarely spoke about my time in that house. Sharing was counter to my instincts, which were to conceal and obfuscate. These were the talents I had honed as a boy and later perfected. Although I didn't know the legal ramifications of speaking about working as a cheater. Had I been caught cheating, not by the players, but by the authorities, the charges would have included theft, illegal gambling, and conspiracy to commit fraud. I wasn't keen on the idea of un inviting unnecessarily unnecessary trouble in my life. Trouble included possible retaliation from the players themselves. Some of the marks were legitimately villainous, and I had learned prone to violence. As far as I know, none of them were aware that they had been cheated. Revealing that information in a public forum certainly seemed like a way of adding insult to injury. Above all, I feared the moral implications. I had convinced myself and the world that I was an honest man leading a moral life. My choices to sit at, the, at that card table and steal money from strangers served as evidence of the contrary. Why admit to deep deception and destroy a truth? Then, the right friend encouraged me to write about it. It was a permission I couldn't give myself. I purchased a new journal and got to work. I was going to write a book and decided to start with the story about the Armenian. I wrote four sentences and quit on the fifth. And I didn't just stop writing that story. I, branded, I abandoned the project altogether. Rather than authoring my first book, I filled the notebook with brief, random, often illegible thoughts and crudely drawn sketches. Once full, I stuffed that notebook into a shoebox alongside a dozen, a dozen other retired journals, some dating back to high school. That shoebox then found its way into the back of a closet where it remained for ne nearly a decade. I rediscovered that shoebox in, in a recent move from Los Angeles to New York. It was like stumbling upon a time capsule I never intended to create for myself. I took a break from unpacking, sat on the stepladder, and traveled down memory lane. The page with the Armenian incident stopped me in my tracks, but it wasn't the unfinished passage that caused me to take pause. It's what I had written below, bolded with three exclamation marks. The words, the opposite of light. Those words were a reference to the only time in my life that I can recall stealing from another soul. I was 11, riding in the passenger seat of my mother's truck. She pulled over at a gas station and handed me a $20 bill. 
Somehow, my mother had convinced me that filling the car up with gas was a rite of passage for kids in Colorado. Now, I can see it was just a clever way for her to stay in the warm car. After filling the tank, I went inside to pay the attendant. I handed him the 20 and he gave me the change, a $5 bill, and some coins. I placed the money in my pocket, hopped back into the car, and we hit the road again. After about 10 minutes of idle chat, my mom suddenly remembered something. I'd hoped she had forgotten. Asking, hey, was there any change back there? I reached into my pocket and grabbed the only coins. She saw the few measly coins in my hand and said, you can keep that, then steered us back to our discussion. When I returned the coins to my pocket, where they joined the unseen $5 bill, I felt like I had gone away with the heist of the century. The hard part was done. All that was left was to sit back and play it cool. Before that moment, I had never stolen money from my mother, or anyone for that matter. I would never shoplifted or even taken a toy from another child. I was an honest boy, a good boy. But in that moment, for some reason, I wanted that $5 bill. At least I thought that's what I wanted. But as my mother continued to speak, the thrill of the swindle subsided. Her voice faded into the background and the little voice in my head began to interrogate me. What are you doing? Why would you do that? Why didn't you show her the five? My 11-year-old self had no reasonable answer to justify my actions. I didn't need the money. If I had needed the money, my mother would have just simply given it to me. And even if I didn't need it, had I asked, she still would have given it to me. Not more than five minutes passed before I crumbled under the self-imposed pressure. Mom, I blurted out. There's something I have to tell you. Then I sheepishly removed the $5 bill from my pocket, saying, There was more change. My mother, trying to keep her eyes on the road, glanced over at the crumpled five. She said nothing as her eyes returned to the road. I assumed she was formulating a punishment that fit the crime. After a moment of uncomfortable silence, she said, Thank you for being honest. You can keep that. It was a trap. It had to be. I kept the bill extended toward her. It's yours, my mother said, nodding at the bill. But only because you told the truth. I want you to know that you can always be honest with me, okay? I said, okay, and reluctantly placed the five back in my pocket. We sat in silence. She searched for her next words as if they were printed on the road ahead of, and eventually found them, saying, There's a lot of darkness in this world, kiddo. Be the light. see why from just that first chapter this book is so absolutely incredible it's it's just so good it's so good 
Um, and if you have the chance, I truly, truly recommend you all getting a chance to read it. Um, whether you go and get the book yourself or find it at a library somewhere, I truly recommend you get, get some time to read it. And especially with spring break coming up, you'll have a lot of time to read it. Um, it's, it's truly so amazing and so well written. Um, I, I aspire to be that good someday. Um, yeah. Well, either way, I hope you guys at least enjoyed that first chapter. Um, and even if you don't go on <laughs> and read the rest of the book, I hope that this allowed you some time to sit back and relax over this weekend um, and just find some time for yourself. Yeah. Take care of yourselves. Be kind to one another. And I think it's time for me to go. I will see you all soon. But until next time, I'm sending love over air. for listening to the Athens Collective. For more content, you can go to Instagram at the Athens Collective, and you may submit collaboration ideas or your own stories to the Athens Collective. M